turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And a few weeks ago, we began considering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Well, this morning we pick up where we left off. And before we get into our text, I think it is helpful to have a reminder of that principle, which is the foundation for everything that we have considered in this sermon series. Whatever is not commanded by God to be done in worship is forbidden. This principle must be our foundation, else we tend towards tradition or man-made inventions which pollute and corrupt and pervert the worship of God. We must look to what Jehovah says concerning His worship. We must seek to obey His commands. And if this means that we reform our practices to be in conformity with the Word of God, then we must be willing to do the hard work to reform them. To not do so, to not seek out reformation, could be deadly. Just ask Nadab and Abihu. And so with that in mind, turn your attention now to the reading of God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll begin at verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us ask His blessing upon it. O Lord, once again we come unto Thee. And we are thankful for this word which thou hast given us, this word which is perfect and pure, this word which is holy.
O Lord, let us receive this word with gladness and with joy and with understanding. O Lord, apply the truths of this word to our hearts and to our lives. Let us see the importance of these sacramental symbols, these sacramental actions which Thou hast given us. O Lord, feed us with Thy Word this day. And let us do the difficult task of searching, searching our hearts so that we may be in conformity with thy word. O Lord, let thy truth prevail. Let the minister decrease so that Christ Jesus would be glorified. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When it comes to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we must approach it in the very same way which we approach every other element of worship. We must go to the Scriptures to see what the Lord has commanded concerning this sacrament. And we must seek to obey these commands. Three weeks ago, we considered uh, the mode of baptism. We looked at what the Word of God says concerning baptism, concerning the mode of baptism. We, We considered what that sacrament is what it is that it seals unto us and how the sacrament is administered uh, and how that conveys those spiritual truths through the sensible signs of the sacrament. And yet, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I very rarely hear anyone speak of the need uh, to... uh, Consider the proper administration of this sacrament. You very rarely hear someone speak of this sacrament being properly administered in accordance with the mode that the Lord has set forth in Scripture. We don't talk about the mode of communion the way that we talk about the mode of baptism. But I think we should. In fact, I would actually argue uh, argue that no one talks about the mode of communion. If you were to ask anyone uh, what the proper mode of communion is, they would likely look at you in utter confusion because we don't speak in those terms. It's just not something that we think about. But the Scripture is actually more explicit concerning the right mode of the administration of the Lord's Supper than it is 
about the right mode of baptism. And if you remember, we saw that Scripture is very clear concerning the mode of baptism. So why then is there this vast difference from congregation to congregation and how the supper is administered? Well, I would argue that it's because we live in a very individualistic society and that individualism has bled over into the church. Remember remember what we saw concerning what is signified and sealed in the supper, that in the meal we have signified and sealed unto us communion with Christ and communion with one another. The Lord's Supper is not an individualistic sacrament, but it is a communal meal. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ instituted it in the manner in which He did. And just as we saw concerning baptism, the sacramental actions of the Lord's Supper are integral to the nature of the Supper itself. And we're not free to depart from those actions. The actions and the elements of this sacrament serve to show forth those spiritual realities that are essential to the sacrament. And so we'll consider the mode of administration of the Lord's Supper this morning by considering what Christ, that, that Christ instituted this sacrament with one loaf, one cup, and one table. So let us first consider that within the supper there is to be one loaf. Look with me at the end of verse 16 and on into verse 17. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Notice here that the bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. And we're given a twofold meaning of this. That the one loaf is the one body of Christ which is broken for you. When, when you break the bread and you partake of it, you are communing with the body of Christ that is broken for you. This is what is meant by Christ's words, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. You are communing with the Lord in His suffering. But there's another meaning as well. Not only is the bread that we break communion with the body of Christ broken for you, but it is also communion with the body of Christ of which you are part of. For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. This bread represents the corporate body of Christ as well. Just as we are all here unique, different individual parts which make up 
the broader body of Christ, so too the bread is made up of unique, individual, different parts and grains which make up that one loaf. And so this symbolizes what is true of the supper, that you are communing with one another. That as you partake of that one loaf, you are partaking of that body which you are part of. There's a unifying aspect to the supper that's shown forth in the loaf of bread. And that's why we each break off a piece of that bread and partake of it because we are each a piece of that spiritual loaf, that body of Christ. And so we condemn the use of individual wafers in the supper because it completely does away with this crucial aspect of what the sacrament is. We cannot lose this vital aspect that is found in the one loaf. And friends, it is one loaf. This is very clear from our text. The bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. It is one bread. Notice that it is the bread. And both the bread and the pronoun it are singular here. Both in our English translation and also in the original Greek. And so it's undeniable, undeniably, most certainly, one loaf. But then there seems to arise a controversy within the church over what type of bread must be used. Most people can agree that it's one loaf. But then what should this loaf be? Are we to use unleavened bread or are we to use leavened bread? Well, if we look in the context in which Christ instituted the sacrament, we see that it took place following the Passover meal. And so this would mean that in order for Christ to be uh, keeping the law of the Lord in regards to the Passover, the bread that He used in the institution of the sacrament would have been unleavened. So does that mean we ought to do so as well? Well, Scripture would seem to argue no. It's interesting that the Lord used the Greek word arton when speaking of the bread. And this is the word for common bread, table bread. It's that bread which you use in your everyday meals. He didn't use the word adzumon, which means unleavened bread. And so it seems clear that Christ Jesus, and He instituted this sacrament, what He instituted to be an element that's used in the supper is 
a common loaf of bread. And that circumstantially, the common loaf of bread that he had at the time of instituting it was unleavened. And so we use common table bread. And here in our society, our common table bread contains leaven. And so that's what we use. And while there are some great men out there who, who've insisted on the need for communion bread to be unleavened, we must agree with our Reformed forefathers that an insistence upon unleavened bread is a form of Judaizing because it insists on maintaining an Old Covenant ceremonial aspect which has no New Covenant warrant. Friends, I pray that this isn't a controversial issue for you. I thank the Lord that we already embrace this practice and biblical example of a common loaf in the supper. And uh, I do want to thank those who who prepare that loaf each time we have communion. This is one of those real tangible ways in which we can show forth the spiritual reality of communion with the body of Christ that is broken for you. And as just a quick aside, His body was broken for you. It was broken. And so this is why we don't pre-cut the bread. Christ's body wasn't cut for you. His body was broken for you. And so this sacramental action of breaking the bread is so important to this as well. And so when you come to partake of the sacrament, remember these things. Remember what the bread signifies. Remember that you are not partaking of this covenantal meal as merely an individual, but that you are communing with Christ and with one another. For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. So, Friends, partake of that one bread together in the feast of this meal. Partake of Christ's one body broken for you and as, uh, as one body that is assembled to partake of this meal. Show forth that union and communion that you have by eating of the one loaf. And just as Christ instituted the supper with one loaf, so too did He institute it with one cup. We read in Luke 22, verse 20, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in My blood, which is shed for you. Christ took the cup, the singular cup, in Mark 14.23 we read, And He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. They all drank of it. 
singular. In Luke twenty two seventeen, we see Christ telling his disciples to divide that singular cup amongst themselves, meaning that they were to partake of the cup and then pass it on to the next person beside them. And so the Lord didn't leave the decision up to the disciples as to whether they would use the common cup which He blessed or whether they would use their own individual cup which they most likely had been drinking from during their ordinary supper just prior to the Lord's Supper. The Lord did not suggest that the disciples drink from the common cup, but rather He commanded His disciples to divide among themselves the wine within the one common cup. And it was that one cup that He blessed. This point cannot be disputed. Because just as plain to see, uh, because it is just as plain to see uh, in the institution of the supper that, that Christ instituted a common loaf, so too it is to see the institution of the common cup. And so that's why when speaking of perverting the sacrament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Because it is the single common cup which shows unity with those who are partaking of it and communion with the one whose cup it is. When you partake of the cup of the Lord, you're showing your communion with the Lord who owns that cup. And really quickly, there's another aspect of the one cup which must be remembered as well. What does Christ say of the cup that it is? He says, the cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. To divide the singular cup of the Lord is to show forth a division in that which it signifies. No longer do we show in our sacramental actions the one New Testament, which is the means by which Christ died for His people. But instead, we show forth that each person has their own individual testament, which is just for them. Friends, I know that this is not the intention of those who have individual cups, but this borders very closely on blasphemy. When a church gives to its communicants many different cups at the Lord's table, it destroys the symbol of oneness which is to be so precious in the church of Christ. And that's all I want to say on that point. I don't want to belabor it any further. So what is the point? Uh, or, or what is in that one cup? Well, we saw that the first element in the supper is the one loaf of common bread. Here we see that the other element in the supper is the one cup of wine. 
And I know this is probably one of the most controversial aspects of worship in the modern church, but for almost 1,900 years, this was a non-issue. I'm going to go off for just a second. We want to talk about the historical uh, nature, the historical precedent of psalm singing within the church. And how for the first 600 years, uh, there were no instruments in the church. And then for the first about 1,200 years, there were nothing but psalms sung in the church. And we want to talk about the historical precedence of infant baptism. That for the first 1,500 years, that was the only position. And it wasn't until the radical reformers of the Anabaptists came in and that then we started seeing this uh, believers-only baptism coming about. Well, if we're going to talk about historical precedents, let's talk about the historical precedent of wine. 1,900 years. 1,900 years. There was nothing else in existence that could have been used but wine. Because until 1869, there was no other option to be used but wine in communion. Because it wasn't until then that the pasteurization process for grapes was invented. 1869. It's evident that the Lord instituted the cup with wine and that it wasn't some freshly pressed new wine as some like to argue. If that were the case, if it were some freshly pressed new wine that had no alcoholic content, then the Apostle Paul would have would would have corrected the uh, would not have corrected the Corinthians in the way that he did. He would have corrected their use of alcohol. But instead, what we see in First Corinthians eleven is that he rebukes them for their getting drunk, not for using alcohol. What we need to realize is that the shift away from wine to grape juice was done out of some what was not done out of some new insight that was found in scripture. It was done out of an influence of the culture upon the church. It was the temperance movement which our denomination has historically been greatly involved in. It was the temperance movement that led to replacing what the Lord instituted with a substitute. And Reverend G.I. Williamson does well in refuting this shift away from a wine into grape juice. He writes, if the decision to use grape juice instead of wine is based on the influence of the temperance movement, we must regard this as seriously unbiblical. It is a false doctrine a legacy from the ancient Gnostics to locate sin or evil in material things. The cause of the sin of drunkenness was located by Christ and man's depraved heart. Mark seven fourteen to 23 Not in wine. It is not biblical to locate evil in the handiwork of God. 
Psalm 24.11, rather than in the heart of man. Nor can the sacrament of the Lord be rightly administered on the basis of deference to such error. This is a man who was a minister in our denomination. And he's calling out the error that was made. And then, friends, I want you to remember that there are spiritual realities which are conveyed in these sacramental actions. There's aspects to this sacrament which are not shown forth in the, uh, by using grape juice. There, there are things found in this sacrament, spiritual realities, which are only found in the use of wine. I want you to think of the bitterness that's found in wine because of the tannins that are in it. And that ought to remind us of the bitterness of God's wrath which Christ drank to the dregs. And then balancing out that bitterness is the sweetness of the grape of wine which reminds us of the sweetness of salvation which is found through Christ drinking the cup of the bitter wrath. You don't get both with grape juice. And then wine has a sanitizing property uh, because alcohol naturally kills bacteria. And this ought to remind us of the cleansing effect of Christ's blood in our hearts as it was poured out for the remission of our sins. It cleansed us. Grape juice does the opposite. It doesn't have sanitizing properties. Instead, it harbors bacteria. And it very quickly spoils. Wine is said in Scripture to be given to make the heart merry. This ought to remind us of the joy that we have in Christ through His sacrifice. And then I don't want to come across as mean or, or dismissive or condescending. But it's interesting that wine is the drink of adults. And that grape juice is the drink of children. There's a spiritual maturity that is required when coming to the table and that is shown forth in drinking, partaking of the drink of the mature. Now I know we do a split cup here, but I want you to think about it. Is that really much better? What are we conveying in in that practice? Are we showing forth the unity of the body and the supper when each person can get their own little cup and some can have wine and some can have grape juice? We may not be like that ancient church where there was the circumcision party and the uncircumcision party, but if we become the church where there is the grape juice party and the wine party,
If I'm being frank, what this practice conveys is that you can have your own little Savior however you want Him because He's yours. Do you want your Savior fermented or unfermented? Seriously, where is the unity in this practice? And I know there are pastoral concerns in this. What of the brother who struggled with alcoholism and and would spiral back in it if he were to partake of wine? Well, first of all, if someone is so beholden to the sin of drunkenness that they would fall back into those ways at even just the taste of wine, then he probably shouldn't be coming to the table. Because it seems evident that he's resting in his own efforts to not fall into drunkenness and not that he's resting in Christ. And I want to point it out here. There's never been an example that's actually been given of of, of this happening with someone. It's always touted as the what if, but not one example has ever been given of this actually happening. And I know many former alcoholics who drink of wine and communion. And remember that this isn't a new problem either. It's not like in 1869 everyone was perfectly fine, but in 1970 there was a ton of alcoholics and that's why we began using grape juice in communion Being a drunkard isn't new. There were drunkards at the time that Christ instituted wine in the supper. Do you think that Christ didn't know about the sin of drunkenness when He instituted wine? Do you think that Christ instituted an element in the supper that would be a stumbling block to people? Is Christ creating stumbling blocks? Those are answers you have to, or questions you have to answer. But then the, what about those who, who made vows not to drink alcohol? Or those that think drinking alcohol would be a sin? Well, first, those who took a vow to never drink alcohol, to never partake of alcohol, made an unlawful vow and they're not bound to uphold it. And I know that a vow was required at one point for both members and officers in the RPCNA. But what most people don't realize is even that vow didn't include wine and communion. It was only in personal partaking. And yet most people who took that vow and believe that it's binding apply it to communion. Something that even Synod said it didn't apply to. But thanks be to God that sin had said this vow was unlawful and you are not beholden to it. And so if you have taken a vow upon yourself, whether by a vow of synod because you were ordained during that time or whether you took a vow upon yourself as a personal thing, a decision that you may have made when you were a teenager, if you made that vow, you are not 
you are not bound to it. It is an unlawful vow. Because Christ commands that you partake of wine in His supper. And if you have vowed to never drink of wine, then you have vowed to disobey the commands of Christ. And then those who think that drinking alcohol would be a sin, well, they need to be shepherded. They need to be shepherded towards seeing the blessing which the Lord attaches to wine. All of these arguments, all of these concerns, pastoral concerns, they're all, uh, they're all arguments of the weaker brother. And we must love and care for and shepherd the weaker brothers that are among us. But the point of the weaker brother principle is to guide them towards strength in the Lord, not to leave them in their weakness. And unfortunately, the principle of the weaker brother has turned into the tyranny of the weaker brother. Where congregations are now held hostage by their weakness. We have to know how to shepherd and care for those who are weak among us, but we cannot let them determine our practices. It must be the Word of God which we look to to determine our practice. And there may be some of you here who are concerned that using the one cup will spread germs. Or you may not even care about germs. You just think that partaking of one cup is gross. The germ issue, the sanitation issue, uh, was the reason why in the early 1900s, I believe it was in 1912, that the RPCNA voted to allow individual cups in communion. Did you hear that? The germ issue was why Synod voted to allow individual cups, not a doctrinal stance. They thought that germs were being spread through the common cup. But friends, this issue is alleviated by the use of alcoholic wine. Yes, germs are spread through a common cup when you use grape juice because it harbors bacteria and germs. But the issue is alleviated by using alcoholic wine, which we have already said kills bacteria. And it's also alleviated as well by using a cup that's made of precious metals, which naturally have antimicrobial properties. In fact, several years ago, the CDC did a study that showed there was no increased risk of infection in those who partake of a, of a common communion cup. The CDC... They're no friends of the church. And yet even they recognize that there is no increased risk in using a common communion cup. In fact, there is a greater risk of transmitting germs by touching the doorknob, shaking hands, 
or uh, using a, a salter that someone else has used than there is in drinking of a common cup. And I want you to note that it is not those who obey the institution of Christ that are at risk of getting sick. But it is those who partake of the sacrament unworthily that are weak and sickly among you and are sleeping. And to those of you who think that it's just gross, I want to ask you a question. If you were there on that night when the Lord Jesus Christ instituted this sacrament for the first time, and you're sitting there and John has just partaken of that common cup, and he passed it to Peter, and Peter has partaken of that cup, and Peter passes it to you, Would you look your Savior in the face and tell Him that you cannot partake of His cup because you think it's gross? That you can't drink after that fisherman did? What a slap in the face it would be to our Savior. But if you wouldn't do that in the night in which he was betrayed, then why do you use that as an objection for doing it now? When you are really communing with Christ in the supper each time we partake as well, he's present. Would you deny the common cup because it's gross? We do not have the authority to do away with what Christ has instituted We don't have the authority to change it simply because it's not what we prefer. I love what F.M. Foster, an RP minister, who's now in glory, he was a minister in New York City in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. I love what he has to say about this. He says, putting in the individual cup where Christ gave the common cup is coming dangerously near like throwing down the altar of the Lord and each one setting up an altar for himself. The altar is not the blood of the sacrifice, but it is part of the divinely appointed order. And so is the common cup. And so we see that the Lord's Supper is Instituted with one loaf and one one cup, but how is it to be administered? Well, we see that it is to be done while sitting at one table. Ye cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partaker partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Once again, it is a singular table. And it is the Lord's table. And sitting at this one table highlights an important truth which is found in this sacrament that the Lord of glory, the King of kings, has called us to be honored guests at His royal dining table. 
This is a great blessing to be invited to sit at the king's table and to sup with him. George Gillespie writes, The honor of communion is to eat and drink at his table in his kingdom. And this honor signified by their sitting, eating, and drinking at his table in the Last Supper, he puts upon them as believing communicants so that it belongs to all as such. The reality that is conveyed in this sacramental act and this mode of communion is that we have been invited to eat at the feast of the king and to not sit round about his table when he has summoned you is the height of disrespect. But instead, we're much more comfortable remaining in our own chosen seats, in the pews, and just being served so that we can just partake of this meal on our own. How are you showing the world that you are communing with your risen Savior when you're not even sitting at his table? Also, sitting at the table most accurately conveys the spiritual reality that we are communing with one another in this meal. To sit individually and take individually does great harm to the sensible sign of communion with one another. Gillespie again writes, the coming to and receiving at the table serves to set forth the communion of the saints which Christ, uh, with Christ and among themselves, which is a principal thing intended in this sacrament and without such a symbol as I now plead for is not plainly and clearly set forth in this ordinance. To eat in the same house and of the same meat is nothing near such a sign of fellowship or communion as to eat at the same table. I know this imagery may be more foreign to us in our modern context because we've lost the great act of communing with others at a table. Instead, we're much more comfortable sitting uh, with our uh, sitting with our meals and eating them on the couch, or even in our own room, individual rooms, away from other people. But to understand the imagery that's conveyed in this sacramental action, we must understand that there is a bond of unity. There is a fellowship that is to be had with others, which can only come through sharing a meal at a common table. That's what's signified here in this sacrament. And unfortunately, that is what precisely what is lost when we lose the table. Dear saints, I know this may seem strange to some of you, and I know this is not what we currently do or what most of you are accustomed to, but it's what Christ has instituted as the mode for administering the sacramental meal. I know there may be concern for space, for having a table large enough for all of the communicants to sit at, 
but that concern ought not cause us to neglect the great practice. There truly is a blessing that is experienced when you sit at the Lord's table. When you're sitting beside your brothers and your sisters on either side of you, and you partake of that meal together as a family sitting at the king's table. And I'm going to be honest with you, I've only ever partaken of the supper in this way one time. And that was during my visit to Phoenix for their communion season. But I can tell you that the Lord blesses faithfulness to his institutions. I remember talking to one lady there in Phoenix who said, that she was weirded out by the idea of partaking communion in this way. But that through faithful obedience, the Lord showed her the blessings which are found in sitting at one table and partaking of the sacrament with the body of Christ. It may be weird, but as you are faithfully obedient to the Lord, it becomes less weird. Brothers and sisters, I want to be very clear. I'm not changing any of our practices here at Westminster simply by preaching this sermon. Any decision for changes in practice must be made as a session. All I'm doing today is just as was done a few weeks ago concerning the mode of baptism. I'm just showing that there is a proper way in which the sacrament is to be administered. The 1560 Book of Discipline of the Church of Scotland says, the table of the Lord is then most rightly ministered when it approaches most nigh to Christ's own action. But plain it is that at that supper, Christ Jesus sat with his disciples and therefore do we judge that sitting at a table is most convenient to that holy action, that bread and wine ought to be there, that thanks ought to be given, distribution of the same made, and commandment given that the bread should be taken and eaten, and that all should drink likewise of the cup of wine, with declaration of what both the one and the other is, we suppose no Godly man will doubt. Notice. Notice that it says the table of the Lord is most rightly ministered in this way. This is because there are degrees of purity when it comes to administering the sacrament. Just as with baptism, baptism by immersion is improper, but it is valid so too is any deviation from the mode of the supper which Christ instituted. But we should not be okay with less pure administrations of the sacrament. We should not be okay with an improper administration of the sacrament. We should look at what Christ has commanded. And if Christ commanded it to be done a certain way, then we, we ought not see how far we can go, how far we can stretch it, 
and still be within the bounds of what He's commanded? Why would we tiptoe the line when the other side of that line could potentially be being consumed by the fire of the Lord? We ought to be striving to conform our practice as closely as we can to that which is most pure. And friends, that which is most pure is one loaf, one cup, and one table. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee once again. We are thankful that we have been given this sacrament which so uh, clearly signifies our union and communion with Christ and our union and communion with one another. Oh Lord, let us seek to ever be uh, reforming our own personal hearts and lives as well as our congregational practice according to thy will. Continue to work in our church, O Lord. Cause us to grow in thy grace each and every day as we seek to glorify thy name. Bless the remainder of our time together. And Lord, let us bring glory and honor and praise unto Thee. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.